I am Dr. Mitch Harlan, and welcome to the Truth Talks Podcast. On the night of September 11, 2012, the U.S. State Department compound in Benghazi, Libya, along with the CIA annex nearby, came under attack. We are honored to have Mr. Mark Oz Geist, a member and leader of the American security team, tell the true story of the bloody assault, tragic losses, and heroic deeds from those harrowing 13 hours. I'm Dr. Mitch Harlan, and welcome to the Truth Talks podcast. Oh my God, my guest today, Mark Oz Geist. I'm going to call you Oz. Is that all right? That's all right. That's like short for Rambo for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, Rambo is a fictional character. Are you going to tell any of your buddies that you're on the show? Um, I don't have no friends. <laughs> all right. I, oh man, I was trying to lead you into that one like you had a whole bunch of them, but you already blew it on that. <laughs> so listen, man, True Talks is uh, what, what our podcast is about is, you know, we're about inspiration, motivation. Uh, and then we have this whole thing about struggle, sacrifice, and, and perseverance, and your story completely captures absolutely everything that we do on True Talks. So we want, I, I'm, number one, I'm honored that you're here. I'm an absolute military junkie, like junkie. Swear to God, true story, my wife will tell you, I fall asleep watching these movies. I've watched, actually, your movie four times since Tuesday. Which movie is that? I'm not even going to go there. I'm going to, you set me, you teed that up for me, but I'm not going to do it. It's 13 hours in Benghazi. I was going to see which one you got on to. Yeah. No, yeah, I, I'm not even going to, we'll leave that off camera, but that was pretty funny. You got it. It was, it was, that, that was, was good. That was good stuff. I'm going to tell you something that's kind of interesting. So I, uh, I was at the airport, I'm getting ready to take a trip and I was going to go to, I think I was heading to New York. And so typically, you know, it's three or four hour deal. I would watch a movie or do something, but instead I bought a book and I bought the book 13 hours in Benghazi. And uh, read half of it up, half of it back. And I sat there and I always thought, you know what, man? How cool would it be to talk to somebody that actually went through that shit? Because I am such a junkie when it comes to this stuff. And uh, here we are. I'm glad we can make it happen. Man, uh, oh, God, you came to... If, if I'm a little bit starstruck in Twitter pay, that's because th that's what it is. And then I'm going to tell you another really embarrassing story. If you laugh at me... I will. How old are you? Um, well, I quit it's a simple question. I quit having birthdays... <laughs> 25 years ago, so, so I'm you're only still 25. I'm only 25. All right, no, good. I'm I'm 30. You're 30. I'll, I turned 30 this year. All right, good. I like that. It's, I'm 30 years old, and it's <laughs> going to be my 25th anniversary of my 30th birthday. Okay, good, good. Did, did uh, so? I'm going to tell you something. It's embarrassing, but I'm going to I'm going to throw it out here. So <clears throat> I didn't get to serve. Well, I could have, but I didn't. And quite honestly, literally, when I was coming through, it was kind of like the bad kids went to the military, right? And there just wasn't anything going on. What are you trying to say? I'm trying to say you fit right in, man. I, you know, I haven't known you that long, but you fit right in. <laughs> Producer Chad, he, he was in the Air Force. That's almost like military, right? Almost. <laughs> kind of. Yeah, you know how they, here's the thing that I love about the Air Force. If I had to do it all over again, I wouldn't go to the Air Force, but I should have. <laughs> you want to explain because, that? Yeah, because, I mean, the Air Force, when they get, they get, money appropriated to build a base you know what they build first the barracks the gyms and the theaters and all the recreational stuff and then they go back to congress and they're like we need more money for the airport <laughs> you know the marine corps they go out and if they're going to build something they build everything but the good stuff and then they're like here's a tent uh what year were you uh, did you uh enlist um 
Well, I, I enlisted uh, my senior year in high school, 1983, in December of 1983, and then I went to boot camp June 10th of 1984. We're going to get down to who is Mark Oz Geist. I, just, I mean, I'm just a guy. I, I mean, I grew up in eastern Colorado, a um, little small town called Rocky Ford. Um, actually, how the town got its name is it's where the Santa Fe Trail crosses over the Arkansas River, and it's where they forded the river, and it was a rocky place to ford it. So that's how they got the name. But, um, I mean, my great-grandfather came over uh, from Eastern Europe because we were Germans that had immigrated to Russia uh, during Catherine the Great, and we had settled there. And then in 1910, my great-grandfather immigrated to Colorado and settled in uh, just north of Lake Meredith in Ordway, just by Ordway, Colorado, because it was all farming and ranching, and the you had a lot of the sugar factories going up in there. There's in the Arkansas Valley. Then there was one, two, three, four, four or five sugar factories, and sugar beets were the uh, were the money crop then. Yeah. So, and and you rodeoed. Yep, I rodeoed. Um, my grandfather on my mom's side. Um, he was really kind of my hero. I mean, he was he was a tank commander in World War II. Uh, and he never talked about anything that he had been through. Um, I mean, growing up, I didn't. I knew that he was in the army. I knew he drove a tank, but that was about it. And then after I got into the Marine Corps, um, and right before he passed away, he gave me his shadow box and with all his medals in it. And uh, he had uh, North Africa campaign medal. Um, and I always thought that one was pretty neat because if you go back, I'm a history buff. If you go back and look at where most of the battles were fought, they were in, in Libya. And my grandmother oh. told me he got injured there. So it's kind of kind of interesting that we both bled in some of the same sand. Isn't that interesting? And uh, then, uh, but he ended up, uh, didn't go in on Normandy. He went in with uh, Patton's army after Normandy, stayed all, pushed all the way through Germany, stayed with the occupation, um, had five Purple Hearts, Silver Star, Bronze Star. Um, so uh, it was pretty, uh, you know, he was that guy. So is that, is that kind of what led you into the military lifestyle? Um, I think that's what gave me the discipline and the, uh, the sense of service. Um, and probably I had three uncles that served in Vietnam, two in the Navy and one in the Marine Corps. And uh, my uncle that was in the Marine Corps, his name's Uncle Jerry, um, Jerry Bowers. He passed away last year. Well, two of my uncles, the, the oldest two passed away last year. Uh, but uh, he uh, did 10 years in the uh, Marine Corps and did two and a half tours in Vietnam. And um, he was that guy, if I went fishing his way, uh, you know, if I did something wrong or said something wrong, he, it was, he punched me. And, and he passed away last year? Yeah. So he got to see the movie and everything. Well, his dementia, he, he, was, he was struggling with uh, Parkinson's and dementia all because of Agent Orange, so he didn't really get to a, get a see any or understand it all. Oh, dang, that yeah. stinks, because that, yeah. man, that, what a great story that yeah. is. Yeah. Man. So, you know, obviously you're a man's man, did the rodeo thing, had that legacy, go into the, you know, into the Marines. Um, that that's the, you know that's the thing that I I saw when I was watching the movie uh, just how that all that stuff comes out right it's like all the you know you talk about the training and all that stuff but man this is from a young age and I, I also know that you know you were raised Methodist mm-hmm. yep. so, and I know there's a big faith thing here because we're mm-hmm. going to talk about that faith so how how does faith and uh, wasting them all work. Uh, shoot, look at the Old Testament. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, the Lord, I, I will smite your enemies. 
<laughs> I, uh, when I was preparing for that, I was sitting there thinking to myself, boy, that, that's kind of an interesting concept, right? And, uh, but we're going to get into that because there's a lot of really cool stuff about just that entire faith. Yep. <clears throat> Before we actually get kind of into the movie, can you tell me a little bit about the guys that were with you there? Um, unfortunately, I guess I can. Right. <laughs> no, you know, it's, uh, and it's, it's so much different the way, cause you know, we were private security contractors. We worked with a group called GRS global response staff. And, uh, as I say, you know, we were, uh, bodyguards for the CIA, you know, and as I always, as you know, you pointed out earlier, it's the culinary Institute of America. <laughs> right. I just want to make sure everybody knows what CIA I'm talking about. Do, do they like that when you say that? Has anybody I don't called know. you yet? No, they haven't. I, you know, ever since I, ever since we wrote the book and did the movie, I ain't got a call from them ever. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe if I talk bad about them enough, they'll come, they'll, they'll come call, call me, but then I don't know if that's a good thing, <laughs> but, uh, <clears throat> no, it's, uh, you know, uh, in the, in the military, you work as a team, you work as a unit, and you travel everywhere, and usually you're, I mean, you've worked together for years, you know, if not at, at least a year or two before you're going into some of these situations. Well, none of us had ever really worked together. Tonto and DB had worked in some of the same places and together. Um, I know Jack and uh, Roan had. Um, they both uh, had worked together in the Navy as well when they were Navy, when they were Navy SEALs. Um, me and Tig had worked in a couple places at the same time, but never together. It was usually, uh, you know, kind of passing, um, as he's flying out, I'm flying in, kind of relieving each other of whatever, wherever we're going and whatever job we had to do. Um, so, you know, we didn't come in there as a group into Benghazi. I mean, I came in, I'd been there only about 45 days come 9-11. Um, Tig was on his third tour, second one into Benghazi, but third tour he did a, into Libya. He did a tour up in uh, Tripoli. Um, Tonto had done a trip in Tripoli and then he was on his second one, uh, in, uh, um, Benghazi and, uh, Roan, I think was on his second one and Jack had just came in as well, real close to the same time I did. Yeah. I heard you guys call it a trip and a trip is like three to four month type yeah. of, of contract type yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I figure that, you know, people talk about deployments, you know, it's kind of a trip is kind of like a deployment. And I mean, I started contracting in 2004 um, until 2012, and roughly early 04 to late 02, to 2012, about nine and a half months. I mean, nine and a half years, and I was gone for seven of it. Yeah, I did. Tw- I mean, if you if you count how many times, I, how many trips, I did 21 trips. Man, that's a lot. Yeah, that yeah. is a lot. And you know, I I, I watched a, another interview that you had done, and and you were talking about literally how, how much time you're away from home and all that kind of stuff. And, man, I got a hell of a sentence coming up that, that I want you to respond to as we get a little bit deeper into this. But um, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a different lifestyle. It is. Um, you know, and, I mean, obviously the pay's well. I mean, it paid a whole lot more than I ever made in the Marine Corps or even as chief of police in small-town Fowler, Colorado. I mean, um, and... I mean, it was just, I think, partially being an adrenaline junkie. It's kind of like rodeo. And, I mean, <laughs> when I say rodeo and I rode rough stock, either bareback um, or bulls. And, uh, you know, even more than that is, I, I mean, part of my growing up, my grandfather always had me breaking horses for people around the area, um, which you don't get, you know, when you're breaking horses, you don't get to get off in eight seconds. Right, right. <laughs> it, when, you were, when you were breaking horses, did you ever say to yourself, man, this sucks? 
not knowing that uh, September 11, 2012 was coming. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. A couple times I got kicked a couple times. I got kicked in the kidneys by a young horse I was working when I was, and I think I was 14 or 15, um, kind of put me into the hospital for a little bit. Um, kind of ru- almost ruptured my kidney, but I mean. Thought that might be your worst day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was hoping. <laughs> So, so give me just a little something about each one of those guys. You know, um, and I would say, you know, the, the actors, and we'll kind of get into this probably a little bit more later, but, you know, what you saw in the movie is, I mean, these guys, it gave me a whole new respect for um, the actors in Hollywood, and then current events kind of ruined that, but... Um, <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> no, but, uh, you know... Max Martini, uh, who who portrayed me, I mean, I couldn't. Have, he got me to a T. I mean, um, and anybody that watched it, you know, they're like, yeah, that's Oz. Uh, Tig's character did the same thing. I mean, Tig's quiet; he doesn't say much, um, but you know, he's going to be there when you need him. I mean, he's the guy that came up on the roof, saved Dave's life. Dave had two injuries that were probably as bad as my arm. Yeah. And he came over and got a tourniquet on on me and but he just they nailed him to the I mean, same with Jack. You couldn't I mean, Roan Roan was that guy, I mean, he's your quintessential master chief in the Navy, you know. He's every morning he'd come out of the uh building and he'd be standing there about six o'clock in the morning, seven o'clock in the morning with a styrofoam cup of coffee <laughs> and he'd just like he's looking over the beaches in uh Coronado when he's running uh, buds, you know. And I just sit there and look at him and during that time, I was reading the book uh, um, about the killing of uh, bin Laden, and he hated the fact that somebody wrote that book. Did and he? Yeah, yeah. He just, he, you know, he wasn't, you don't write books. Yeah. Um, but uh, I would always go up to him. I'm like, you know, hey, man, I read the book. You know what chapter I'm in? <laughs> He'd be like, oh, F you, you know. <laughs> I'm like, oh, come on, man. I got it, you know. I just got to have that dig in on him, but uh. you know. I, so before we even go on, I want to address that just a second because you know one of the one of the reasons I got so excited for you to come on is, you know what? I think it's inspiring for young people now. Matter of fact, I think it ought to be mandatory that people go in the military to get that discipline. I mean, hell, you're not doing anything productive from 18 to 21, 22 anyway. Get that just that discipline and that you know growing up and growing up fast and and learning respect. That's a big thing. But when you come back to that. I know a Navy SEAL. He was in for quite some time, and uh, yeah, they they kind of they kind of like to lay low key, and they don't like people writing these books. And you know, I hate to disagree with a Navy SEAL, even though he's sixty. I'm pretty sure he'd kill me with his tongue if he wanted to. But the deal is, is that um, I kind of like it, though, man. I think it inspires kids, and I think we need that now. You know, and I agree with you. You know, because I was never one about writing books. I mean, really, kind of what had Benghazi not been brought out the way it was and the politics behind it, um, I don't think that we'd have ever written the book. I mean, because it's just none of us really were into that. But um, once they started telling our story and they weren't there, kind of figured somebody better tell it right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're trying to tell us how it was on the ground, and I didn't see none of them there. I mean, there was a guy, a British guy that supposedly was with the group called Blue Mountain Guard, which they did, there was a Blue Mountain Guard there. That's who controlled the, they were the local nationals that did security on the outside of the walls, basically, so of the consulate. Yeah. So when somebody come up, you know, they got to see a Libyan. And uh, 
he come he come on the news one night and he's talking about how he jumped over the fence and butt stroked some people and this and that and it's like we're all looking at each other like. <laughs> Did you see him there? I didn't see him there. Did you see him? No, no one ever saw him there. Which is sad. I mean, man, if you're going to do it, do it right. Hey, if you're there and you got a story, because, you know, it's one thing I tell everybody is, I mean, everybody has a story to tell. Anybody that served in the military or served in law enforcement, anything like that, our first responders around the country, you have a story to tell. You may not want to put it in a book, but put it into something so your kids, your grandkids know that. I mean, and like my grandfather, I mean, I, I miss not knowing the stories. I mean, he had five Purple Hearts. He was in North Africa. He was Battle of the Bulge going into the occupation. I mean, he had to, he had to have some great stories. Man, I can't agree more because I, I that, and that's what I told uh, um, the, the SEAL that I know really well. I, I said, you know, I, I have to disagree with you, man. I said, I, I, I think that is so inspiring for, for these kids. And man, we need more of that. We need mm-hmm. more of that. So, you know, so Tyrone was your prototypical Navy SEAL. He was looking out every morning with the coffee. Yeah. Tig, small, you know, uh, he's a big guy, though, right? Oh, yeah. Tig, look, he's yeah. a big guy, but he's quiet. Yeah. They, and I think they portrayed that pretty yep. well. All right, yep. keep going. Um, Jack, you know, I mean, and Jack was that, he was quiet. He was kind of, uh, and he was that, I guess what you'd say, his personality or the way he looked at things is the yin and yang, the good and the bad. I mean, if something good's happening... You know, it's like, okay, great. Now something bad. It's There was always both sides to the coin that he looked at. Um, um, DB, he was our philosophical uh, jarhead, and I'm not sure if those two words go together. Right. A jarhead that's philosophical. I mean, other than a cuss word or two, you know. But uh, And then, you know, the quintessential uh, character of all characters is Tonto. You know, I mean, I don't even know if I have to say anything more than that. Everybody who ever met him, who's seen the movie... <laughs> Who's read the book? I mean, he's he's Tonto. You know, he uh, his character was lively in there, and it, it seemed like he really annoyed Boone quite a bit. Oh, he annoyed all of us, I think, <laughs> or at least one time or another. I mean, I love him to death, but you know, I mean, did he really dance around with the flashlight? Oh and- yeah, yeah. You'd never know what he's gonna do. I mean, it, he's he is who he is. I, and, I love colorful people. Yeah. Keep going. Who we got? Well, that's about it, isn't it? it? Well, we forgot Oz because um, here's what I wondered. Um, Who's Oz? Well, see, here's the thing. So I've seen all you guys, and then I'm sitting there like, man, did they choose these guys? Because, I mean, all the actors are really good-looking people. Yeah. And he's, like, stacked. Oz is stacked. Did you choose that? No, no. (laughs) It's funny because, so Max Martini, when it first come out, we had heard that Max was going to play Tig's character. And, man, my wife was pissed. <laughs> and here's why. My wife has had a crush on Max Martini <laughs> since he back when he was playing in The Unit on TV. Remember the TV oh, show yeah. The Unit? So he was there, and she always had a crush on him. And my daughter, my oldest daughter, she was 15 at the time in 2012. And it was funny because my wife, was. she was like, that guy, he can't play Tig. He doesn't look nothing like Tig, da-da-da-da-da. You know, and it's like... I'm like, honey, it ain't about looks, you know, it ain't about them. And then we find out that um, he's going to play me. And uh, my oldest daughter, Keely, said, you know, you know, Mom, you know why you like uh, Max so much? And she's like, why? Because he looks so much like Dad. <laughs> so it, it was, I, thought, I thought that they <clears throat> nailed the look. Oh, yeah. 
which which I think is important too. Oh, I think, it is. That, I think that's really important that they did. I posted a picture of um, Max online, and he's sitting back, leaning against the uh, the the lockers, the wooden lockers, and he has his rifle kind of between his legs, and he's sitting back with his glasses on. And uh, I posted that, and I said, "Oz or Max?" My mom comes up, she calls me, she says. That's you, isn't it? I'm like, Mom, really? Come on. <laughs> you don't even know who your son is? That's not me. <laughs> what, a, what about uh, how do you feel? Uh, let me go with this line. Did, did he, you guys spend a lot of time together? Uh, you, we, me and Max didn't get to. I know Tonto and his character, he came out and spent a lot of time with Tonto. Um, I think Ter- Tig's character, they got to spend some time together because Max was filming another show. We didn't really get a meet up until we went to Malta for, uh, um, I think it was when we first, that's where me and him first met in person. We got to talk over the phone a lot. Yeah. Um, but uh, that's where we really got to, the first time we got to talk. Do you, do you feel like he nailed you? Oh, yeah. And yeah. careful with that, how you say that. <laughs> well, you feel like he got that part exactly right? <laughs> yes. There we go. <laughs> That we go. That uh, that's the kind of the cool part too, because I always wonder stuff like that. But I also know how Hollywood works. I, I did a movie thing myself, and and I know how they they really try and and really nail that and bring that out. So, man, if that's yeah. close, that's badass. Yeah, it's you know, and it was because he didn't. It, most of the questions he asked weren't about what happened in Benghazi, because he had the book and he had you know all of all the interviews and everything that we've done. He wanted to know about me. One one of the things that that I always thought also was was super duper interesting, and and uh, of course when people knew I was going to have you on, you've told this story a lot. I have. I have. What other? I mean, I know you've been on everything. You, we had talked. You've been on Hannity and who else? O'Reilly. O'Reilly. Um, Megan Kelly. Well, because I know with Hannity and those guys, <clears throat> I, I I didn't know if you were going to be nervous coming on our show. Are you comfortable? You know, it, it was it was it's a big step going from Hannity up to here. You know, I, mean, I appreciate this is, that, uh, Oz. This is, uh, you know, it's like you said, it's truth talks. True talks. I appreciate you that. Know? Because I know if I go on Hannity or O'Reilly, I knew who was going to do all the talking. <laughs> That's a good point, right? Yeah, yeah you exactly. get to be the star here, man. That's how this it. works. I know it. So tell me about that. Like, uh, when, you, when you're doing those shows, um, literally, and, and you're kind of going through everything that, that kind of went down, is, is it one of those things where you feel like everybody really kind of gets it. Like when you watch it back, do you feel like that everybody really understands what happened that night? Yeah. You know, and, and I mean, Michael Bay for all his explosions and everything else and how he, you know, all the things that he does in a movie. Um, the one thing is he wanted to get it right. Um, and one is I also told him that when I first met him, he's, you know, because when you sign your life rights away, when you write a book and you sign your life rights, I mean, it literally says you can de- we can depict you however we want to make this movie make money. And, you know, and I didn't, I mean, some of the guys were worried about it, and I didn't care. I didn't care. I mean, and I told Michael Bay, first time I met him, I said, you know, you put me in a pink bunny suit running around Benghazi hitting people with a foam bat. But if you do anything that disrespects Ty and Glenn, I'm going to beat the living shit out of you. <laughs> And he sits back and he's like, uh, you don't have to worry about that. That's okay. I'm like, I ain't worried about it. You know, normally when somebody says that, you're kind of like, all right, come on, dude. 
But then you watch the movie and you're like, no, he kicked shit out of you. <laughs> he did and you actually hope that that's all that happens to you, just get the shit kicked right. out of you. Right, right. right. <laughs> let's do get it. into the movie. Yeah, so let's do t- it. You know, again, I, and, and I know you've done it a million times. You can synopsis the whole nine yards. But, and, and again, I know it was pretty much the way it was. But you were kind of, you were on the scene there. Mm-hmm. And I know when some of the other guys came in, they came in after you. Just kind of go, go through the literally that 13 hours. Well, you know, so, I mean, been go- of all the places I've been in the world, and I kind of joke about it, um, if the country ends in Stan, I've probably been there. Um, but with Libya, I mean, I felt safer in Libya than I did in a lot of these other countries because the Libyan, the average Libyan person loved us. And, you know, it's because... And, and it's because the backstory of Libya. I mean, Tripoli and Sirte was different than Benghazi, Mizrata, and uh, Derna. Derna's further to east towards the, the Egyptian border. I mean, those were two different tribes, and they didn't get along with each other. Uh, Gaddafi was always going after that tribe. That part of Libya, he would have probably not cared about it if it wasn't for the oil. Right. Um, now, they were more fanatical. At least that's where, because of its location out towards the desert, once you got in their land a little bit, there was a lot of training facilities that were training foreign fighters to come into Iraq and Afghanistan to uh, kill Americans. Um, Gaddafi basically kind of under the Bush administration, because if you look back in 2005, Gaddafi had a chemical weapons program that he was working on. He had a nuclear weapons program he was trying to uh, put in together, and he was trying to take... Libya and North Africa, Muslim countries off of uh, the U.S. dollar as a trading standard. Um, 2005, what was significant? We hanged Saddam. Well, the Iraqi government hanged Saddam. And a little bird flew over and told Gaddafi, you're next. If you're not going to go after those militias that are training foreign fighters that are killing our boys and our ladies then we're cu- you're going to be next. And you need to back off on this whole chemical and nuclear stuff. Well, Gaddafi was as flamboyant and everything as he was. He's a smart man. He's like, you know what? I'm going to do what that guy says because I don't want to end up like hiding in a cave, which is kind of irony because that's what he ended up doing. Right. But um, he had surrounded Benghazi and was going to annihilate him, basically. And that's when, you know, obviously between that time and the Bush administration, we had a change of administration the Obama administration came in. They had a different idea towards foreign policy, um, right, wrong, or indifferent. I mean, they felt that the Arab Spring was going on. I think that uh, they wanted to uh, push that. And I think Hillary Clinton, um, at the time, she wanted to have that foreign policy win so she could run for president in 2016. I'm, I mean, there was actually a, e- a email um, that was sent from Sidney Blumenthal, who used to be an advisor for Bill Clinton, and her advisor in kind of um, unofficial because President Obama wouldn't let her hire Sidney Blumenthal because he's so crooked. Yeah, <laughs> go figure, right? <laughs> and uh, he sent her an email, said, "Hey, there's this uh, revolution going on in Libya in Benghazi. You ought to look at it. It'd be a great foreign policy win for you." in 2016 when you run for election. This is 2011. Yeah. Okay. So 
she sent the amb ambassador, Chris Stevens, in, who was a foreign service officer, a great guy. Um, and I say that I never knew him. I never met him personally, but he's a guy that came up through the ranks of State Department. He had started when he was young and worked his way up to be one of the higher guys. And he was a foreign service officer that was sent into Benghazi and kind of coordinate all the militias and put them under um, one umbrella, which was February 17th Martyrs Brigade, which was like the biggest militia and the most friendly um, to the U.S., and put them under that umbrella to, and basically said, you know what, we're going to help you overthrow Gaddafi, but this is how it's got to work. And so, you know, in, in, in small talk, but that's how he started. And then because he was successful, he was uh, given the ambassadorship there in uh, Libya after 2011. Seemed like he was really well respected too. He was, the people loved him. I mean, you know, he spoke, I think he spoke three or four different dialects of Arabic. Um, very well educated. Very, I mean, he loved the people. He loved the culture. Um, you know, and, uh, and, and he just wanted to do better in this world. He thought we could always do better. Yeah. Yeah. That, and, and it kind of come back to, to be part of the issue as well. Yeah. You know, and, and I mean that, uh, being altruistic about other people, I mean, you got to understand your enemy and know him. I mean, you know, I mean, I, somebody asked me early on when we were writing the book, uh, well, it was before this one, cause which is a whole nother story about writing a book. Yeah, it? we're going to get to that. Yeah, so they asked me, they said, uh, you know, do you hate the people that were trying to kill you? And I'm like, no, why? And they're like, what do you mean you didn't hate them? They were trying to kill you. I'm like, I ain't got to hate somebody to kill them. <laughs> I mean, and I don't mean that in a bad way. No, I mean, get it. You know what? I have a job to do. That guy's trying to kill me. I'm going to kill him first. And if he wins, then... I get to go see the Lord. I mean, for me, it was a win-win. I get to go home and be with my family, or I die and go and be home with the Lord. How can you beat that, right? Right. No, we're going to talk about your faith, because that, <clears throat> that was such a, a really interesting part, and, and I, I certainly want to spend some time on that. When You know, one of the things that Chief, you guys called him Chief, mm -hmm. was, he, was, he kinda, was he kinda hardcore? Bob? Yeah. You know, me and Bob kind of got along, but then it's my personality. I mean, I was the oldest guy there. Um, what was that, seven years ago? I was 47 years old. I think Ty was probably the closest to me. He was four or five years younger than I am. Tonto was around the same age as him. Um, but I had a lot of different experiences. You know, I'd done 12 years in the Marine Corps. I got out. I was in law enforcement um, in Teller County, Colorado here. I did um, investigated crimes against children. Um, I was kind of, I guess, I, as I say, I was blessed to be able to get kids to tell me stuff they should never have to tell anybody. Yeah. And then my background as being an interrogator in the Marine Corps, I was able to get suspects to tell me things that most of them would never tell anybody. Um, and it be all done in a way that to make, because my goal was to make sure the kid never had to testify in court. I wanted to get that guy to confess. I wanted it to be righteous and I wanted it to be fair because I knew if I did that, that kid would never have to go through the struggle of having to do that in, a, in open court. Um, but then I left there and I was chief of police and in chief of police in Fowler, Colorado. I mean, it was, you know, it's Fowler, Colorado, 1,260 people. It was like Mayberry, <laughs> but it actually gave me a chance to do law enforcement other than the bad stuff. I got to impact people's lives on a positive note, which is very, very seldom is law enforcement. Um, but so I had a lot different outlook on how to deal with people. And so Bob was that guy. I mean, I would have to say Bob probably was a great spy back in the day yeah you know when the cold war and how traditional things were that's how he was raised up through the um 
the Culinary Institute of America. You know, he was a good sous chef. <laughs> and, uh, but the way we were, I mean, 2020, you know, September 11th, 2001 changed the world. Oh, yeah. Changed how we fought, changed the enemy. There isn't big nation fighting anymore. And it took a different caliber of people and a different mindset. And I don't think he was able to make that transition. He didn't know his people. He didn't trust us. I don't think as fully as he could have. He didn't I got get that to sense. know us. I got that sense. And it was and he was towards the end of his career and he was just like cuz he had told Jack in the movie he said, you know, hey, listen, we just don't need more guns. We need no incidents. Right. But 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 Bob pissed me off at the end. Oh, he When he's sitting in that chair and he's like, I'm staying. I'm like, dude, I wanted to come through the TV screen and be like, no, you, dude. And you that really happened. happened. I mean, that really happened. That, yeah. He was and now I know that really happened because the other guys told me. I mean, I've been laying in the back of a Hilux pickup truck on its stretcher, so I didn't get to see it. But I mean, you know, it's it's one of those things. I mean, there's no doubt about it that that happened. That we had three or four guys, and you know, again, I people are like, well, you guys were a team. You're all going to cover each other six. Well, yes and no. I mean, but because the one thing is, is we want the truth out there. We don't. I'm not care. I don't care where it lands. But the truth is the truth. Yeah. And if we can't talk about the truth, I mean, and that's the problem that I have with every most of our politicians this day and age. I mean, don't say something to make yourself feel good or look good. Tell the truth. And if, you know, somebody asked me, and kind of off the note, back in 2015, 2016, when I was, I'd kind of done a lot of stuff for the Trump campaign, helping them around the country, because I believe that he was the right guy, and I still do. Um, they asked me if I was if I'd ever consider running for governor in Colorado. And I'm like, you guys don't want this guy running for go- governor. And they're like, why not? I says, because first thing I'm going to tell y'all is this right here. I have I'm a Marine for 12 years. I probably said something that offended everybody. Okay, off color joke. I mean, it's and I have to first thing I'm going to do is apologize for it. You know, I was young. I was dumb. I was a Marine. I mean, you know, in the Marine Corps, then we didn't have a color yeah. other than green. Right. And you just, we were all different shades of green. Right. That's the way the Marine Corps is. You're different shades of green. You're dark green, light green, whatever it may be. I mean, but we're all Marines. And, you know, if we can't bust each other's chops, then what is it, you know? You know, that's why I go back to, I think if, if every kid had to do that, kind of like they, you know, they do over there in Israel, if you, if you had to do that, man, I think that solves a whole lot of problems. Well, you know, it's, it's this here. It's, I mean... Because being a man isn't all about shooting guns. It's, it's a lot having, of it, though. It, it's about having respect, courage, honor, integrity. Those are the things that really matter. I don't care if you can pull a trigger. Anybody can pull a trigger. We've seen it happen. The most cowardly guys in the world can pull a trigger. True story. But to be able to tell the truth, stand behind it, and have the integrity to take responsibility for your actions, that's a whole other person. You know? All right, so you're sitting there. You're in this boardroom. You meet when in the movie anyway. Jack comes in, you mm-hmm. meet him, and then that's kind of when this story kind of starts to happen, right? It's kind of yeah. when you start to see it pick up. Yeah. And God, there's so many questions I want to ask you. We got four hours, right? We got as long. We got. I ain't got to be home till midnight. My wife said, "Perfect." Hey, she actually she's like, "Man, when's this COVID stuff gonna quit <laughs> so you can get back on the road? Because you've been around way too long." <laughs> right. No, she has. She's. I couldn't ask for a better woman. Yeah. She put up me. She put up with me traveling, being gone for seven years out of nine and a half. I mean, 
You know, and that would be an interesting even topic to talk to her about. I mean, that's stressful as hell because I remember, mm-hmm. you know, you guys, you call on your families in between those days. Of course, you know, one, one of the things that um, uh, Bob said was he goes, listen, nothing happens here. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah it until did. It's, it's nothing happens until it does. Yeah. And, and I mean, obviously, you know, this is kind of quasi disrespectful just knowing that you're, you know, you're training and everything else. But do you ever relax? Are you always prepared for 9-11? Especially overseas, you're always prepared for 9-11. Every day was 9-11. I mean, they didn't and, – and the reason is, I mean, it's not like they hired us to be crossing guards. Yeah. They put us in some of the worst areas in the world because we can get the job done. I mean, um, every one of the guys that I've ever worked with that's ever been part of GRS is a – intelligent tactical gunfighter and that's different than you know everybody says knuckle draggers well <laughs> knuckle draggers don't think i mean yeah we're knuckle draggers with the brain it's i mean we're nathanderals with <laughs> you know with that transition we're that missing gene so to speak I yeah mean, because if you're not thinking you know because look at benghazi i mean we have six guys protecting roughly 20 some odd people inside that compound and like that night, I'm out with a female case officer by myself. You know, I, everything I do depends on whether she lives or dies. And to me, that's a responsibility of covering somebody else's life, being responsible for somebody's else, somebody else's life. Um, that's a huge responsibility. I don't take it lightly. Huge. Well, that's kind of like when, when I saw it in the movie and he said <clears> that, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, you know, again, not having served, but I'm thinking, man, you're like in one of the most hostile places in the world. What are you talking about? Yeah. Right? And, of course, I obviously knew what ended up happening at the end of the movie. But even then, I mean, I think anywhere over there where you've got that type of thing, I mean, it has to be intense every day. Yeah, you have to be – you keep your head on a swivel. you got to understand and read things, read crowds, read people. I mean, you're driving down the street. Um, you got to know what the people are doing. I mean, you know, but my career in the military – my career as law enforcement, I mean, all, everything, really everything I've done and everything that God's put me through is for a reason. And that reason was September 11, 2012, because, I mean, you know, I lived out in town in Baghdad with a South African and four um, Kurdish guys for a year because yeah, I was a, an advisor to Dr. Ayad Alawi, who was one of the former prime ministers of Iraq. My, my job was to make sure his security was adequate and kept him safe and alive when he was in Iraq. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, I enjoyed living out there than, more than I did living in the safety of the, of the base because the base got rocketed. Yeah. I never got rocketed out in town because the people weren't going to rocket us because they didn't want to kill the, the, our neighbors. You know, this may or may not be something you want to answer, <clears throat> but um, how, how do they choose who goes to on what trip? Um. I'm not sure. I mean, I, they never really, it's like where I was at before, I, I was volunteering to get to the next place that was worse. <laughs> I just, I mean, hey, can I get to there? I mean, I wanted to get into Syria. If we, if, I'm like, if we ever go into Syria, I want there. If, we, if there's someplace worse than that, that's where I want to go. Um, Is that the adrenaline thing? I think it's the, it's, it's, it's the adrenaline, but more so it's the, I want to challenge myself to be in the worst there is. You know, one, one of the things I was going to bring up, I'm going to do it now. Um, 
in the movie, Jack said um, he, he was talking to um, uh, Boone, I believe, and, and he said, um, he says, why can't I just stay home? And he says, because warriors don't stay home. Right. And is, is, that, is that pretty accurate? You know, I think it is. I mean, um, trying to think of how to best say this, because there is, I can, there's a different mentality than a lot of the younger guys. I know that the guys I've worked with have. And it is that. It's, you know, I mean, that sense of service. I mean, I think all of us in the military, and I got to, I mean, I, I got to commend everybody who served in, um, yesterday I was honored by being asked by the Air Force Academy to speak to the n- new incoming cadets. And we, you know, it's virtual, so we had to do a taped interview. But, um, and I said this to them, and I say it to everybody that's ever served, is, you know, you've all put your feet on those footprints. You've raised your hand and swore to uphold the Constitution of the United States of America, so I call you brother or sister. I don't know you, but you're still my brother, you're still my sister, because you've made that commitment. Because there's only like 1% of the population has ever served in the military from beginning to now. I mean, it's not very many people. And, you know, it takes a special breed. Now, for me, it's that sense of service. And I think each one of us has a little bit different. I was talking to a few guys uh, a couple weeks ago, you know, and one of the guys is like, well, it wasn't sense of service for me. I just wanted to earn my grandfather's respect. I'm like, okay, well, that's good. It doesn't matter why you did it. It's that you did it. You know, but for most of the guys I've worked with, it's that sense of service, being a part of something bigger than yourself. You know, that, that is, uh, like I said, that's one of the regrets I have as I got older. And, you know, this is my way uh, of being a patriot. I bring you guys on and expose that and expose these kids to guys like you because, you know, unfortunately, we're going to get older. Well, we are, you know, and, and the thing is, though, is that, and I put this to anybody because I have a lot of people come up to me, you know, that are both in the military and not, and they're like, man, I wish I could have been there with you. And I'm like, no, you don't. Yeah. <laughs> no. You don't. And here's the thing. The Lord has a purpose for each and every one of us. He has put you through what he's put you through to be where he wants you to be. It's our job to make sure that we're doing what he asks us to do. And I can't wait to get to that segment. And here's how I'm going to segue into that segment. So you are, they're over at the, you guys are at the uh, annex. Yes. And hell breaks out at the consulate. Mm Mm-hmm. You were actually responsible, though, over at the Annex to when all that was going on, you guys were separated. They went there. You started getting yep. ready. You didn't know, though, that they were coming there, but you well, were getting ready for it. Now, remember, I was out in town. I had to make my right. way back and made it back, and these were already gone over there. Right. Which just, I mean, I was pissed. It's like they're over there getting in a gunfight, and I can't be there. <laughs> I mean, it's like, really? I got to stand here? But didn't you kind of know it was coming there? Yeah, you did. I mean, you had to be ready for it. You have That personal desire to be over there has to, has to be um, suppressed for the desire to make sure you protect the people you're, 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 you've sworn to protect. It's your brothers, too. Yeah. Right? Yep. That's another thing. God, you know, we're just jumping all over, but I don't even care because I'm, I'm freaking digging this. <laughs> But, you know, one one of the things that I saw when, you know, you guys were up on that roof and stuff, and, you know, I I mean, sometimes we're just not the best husbands, we're not the best Mm -hmm. friends, we're not the best whatever, but, man, when you see that bond and how you guys meld together, I mean, just like a molten lava, and it just, everything is just like one 
being. There's nothing closer than than men or women that would mm-hmm. be in that situation. Hundred percent. That is such a cool cool thing to see. And man, kudos to the producer that he nailed that he aspect. Did. He did. You know, and uh, um, from the aspect of being of creative control, um, that was probably one of the biggest changes from reality. Was that in reality we fought from four rooftops because we had 360 degrees. Right. So some of the guys really didn't get to get involved because they're facing that way when the attack's coming this way. You can't turn from there and start shooting this way. Two reasons. is One, you're shooting over my head or in the back of it. Right. Two is, what if somebody comes up from that way? you got to be ready. Um, and so they basically showed it, and it was to, for the purpose of it, was to show the teamwork, the loyalty, the way, the, the love of brotherhood that we have for each other. And, you know, they nailed it. And they had to do that. And I was really glad that they did because it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have shown it the same if they hadn't done that. I agree, man. That was like one of my favorite kind of parts to that. So, okay, so these guys come back in really shitty situation, right? Cars on fire, the whole nine yards. Now you know it's about to get real. Yep. But you had already, at least it was depicted there, you'd already kind of started setting up the fact that it, it was coming. Well, and, you know, and it's in the Marine Corps, I have these things. It's called my six P's. Prior planning prevents piss poor performance. <laughs> For us as a team, it was the same way. I mean, that night was not the first night we thought of ever getting attacked. Right. I mean, we would game it. When we had downtime, we would sit there and one person would draw up the, a map of the compound. Okay. If we got attacked here, the rest of you tell me how it's going to be done. And we'd, we'd switch off and just keep doing things like that you know, every other day or something like that. So it wasn't the first time. And, and in that, you know, we made sure we had elevated fighting positions in the corners and in key parts so we could have intersecting fires. We made sure that every firing position had um, ammo cans that were full of loaded magazines. So I didn't have to worry about dragging ammo from place to place, making sure that water was available, checking on your guys, doing all those things that, you know, you're taught in as a young Marine or as a young uh, Army Ranger or as a young Navy SEAL, all those things that you do to make sure that you can be a cohesive team and, and fight and, and be ready. And, and so it just, it just happened. I mean, you were ready just, when the time came. Yeah, you got to be ready because you, if you're waiting to get ready when it happens, you're too late. Too late, absolutely. And so you're, it's coming now, right? And this thing comes in waves, right? Yep. And I, and I got to tell you, this is, where, this is where I get a little bit like, like uh, I don't know what you call it, starstruck or whatever, right? Because, man, when that thing starts, that was just, that sends chills down my spine. So you guys, again, you're kind of bound by these rules. You can't shoot till you've been shot at. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that's coming. What's the first thing going through your mind? Well. Is it more strategic planning, or are you just picking out specific targets that you're going to go ahead and? More of it was kind of, I mean, it was it was communication between, and it was easy communication because, you know, the first attack the movie shows it a little bit different, but the first one was me and Tig were in the elevated firing position. Tonto and DB were on top of a rooftop, and we had that the direction they were coming at us. We were the only four that could engage. Um, and so we were identifying targets that we saw with, laser, with infrared lasers. And yeah. we were, so we all knew kind of where things were at and making sure that we had them in intersecting fires. You know, and it was kind of an unsaid thing. It's, you know, we had... Um, great floodlights pushing out. We shut off all the lights on the inside so we're not backlit. 
And, you know, it's kind of like Bunker Hill. I mean, wait till you see the whites of their eyes. Right. They think that, you know, because they came up on us thinking, I mean, the first attack was, oh, 15, 20, maybe 25 guys. And at first we couldn't tell if they had weapons. We thought maybe it was um, Feb 17 setting up our outer perimeter to come help us because that's kind of what the un, the un, you know, the uh, not unknown, but the um, unsaid kind of, relationship was yeah yeah it seemed confusing oh uh, yeah 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 you didn't i yeah. mean you really didn't know who the good guy was or the bad guy was until they pointed a gun at you so you just got to be quicker on the draw man and uh you know they came up and as they're moving up a guy had been able to sneak up close to the wall and he threw uh, an ied over the wall and it was as tig was moving up to my position um and it landed in between us and blew up and that's Right as that happened, they opened up fire on us at the same time. And, uh, you know, I remember looking back and in the in the light of the explosion, I just see Tig sitting there. He dropped the water that he had, and he's sitting there patting his arms and legs, making sure he still had them. Yeah. Oh my God. And it was a brief second. I turned back, and I started engaging. Um, Tonto's engaging. DB's engaging. Tig comes up, jumps up beside me. He starts engaging. And, you know, I mean, it was probably – 10, 15 minutes, and, uh, I mean, we it was, uh, like I say, I mean, I grew up eastern Colorado. We used to do a lot of prey dog hunting. Yeah. I mean, something sticks its head up, you shoot it. <laughs> now, you've, you've been, you had been in action before. Yeah. So that probably is, a, is interesting because you got experience. Yeah, this is like nine and a half years into a, into a you know, into my career as a right. contractor. In right. A dozen, almost a handful, we'll just say two handfuls of countries. Right, exactly. Is that, like, give me the experience with that. Does, like, everything start to go in slow motion, or is it hyper-fast? Do you kind of get that thing where, you know, you only hear your, your depth, but your vision is acute? I mean, what, what goes on physiologically when this is going on? Well, it's, you know, part of what I call it is task saturation. You're getting, ta- you're getting oversaturated by things that you got to do, and that could be taking care of a target here, there, there, watching your buddy to your left and right covering this. And what you have to do is you have to think, you have to, I mean, and you're, and we train to do this, um, or I should say not we train to do this, the training puts you into this. And things, in a sense, they slow down, and you identify the threat that you have to, you get rid of it, and then you go to the next one. You get to the next threat, you do that. If you got to, you know, change magazines, you change magazines, scan your area, come back up, re-engage, take care of that threat, take care. And you just have to do that in that center because, you know, you got, it's almost kind of like being a pilot. I mean, but pilots are traveling 800 miles an hour. Imagine the same thing. You're in a dogfight. You got two planes coming, you know, eight or nine planes and they're coming at each other. I mean, heck, I think we had it easy. I mean, we only had like 30 or 40 guys coming at us and we, they were kind of running, but not that fast. But each wave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, one, one of the things that uh, really struck me, too, um, that I thought was, in, was incredible, actually, was, uh, again, uh, this goes back to Jack. Jack, really, he talked a lot. You, you didn't talk much in the movie. No. No, you're a quiet guy until you get started. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> it, my, mom, my mom said this. She says, you know, if you could have got, pay, got paid to, talk, uh, to do all the talking you did when you was a kid, you'd never have to work. <laughs> you'd never have to work again. <laughs> Here's what Jack said, though, when he's sitting up there. He said, I, I hate the downtime. 
because that's when his brain went to the the family, the mm-hmm. all that other stuff. But when he, when you're in the action, it's like hyper focus. You know, you're you're just thinking about task at hand. Is that is that pretty relative to you as well? Yeah, kinda. I mean, a little bit more more. When we, I was in downtime, I was worried about the other guys. Did everybody get water? Do they need things? And that's that's Marine Corps training. I mean, okay, when you're done, when you're in downtime, what can I do to make my defensive position better? Do I got to make sure that guys, I mean, especially as a leader, and and a leader isn't the guy that's in charge all the time. Right. Okay. Um, when you got a small unit like what we had, six guys, I mean, Tyrone's the medic. He was the team lead. Um and he's the medic, so he's got to handle medical stuff. He's going around checking on people for that. I'm making, I go around make sure people have water. Do they need food? Do they need this? Go talk to uh, our CIA team lead. You know, um, hey, what's coming up? Do we need anything else? Are we getting any support? That's how I handled downtime. Was making then okay if I can if I got everybody else taken care of, then I can take care of myself. Did you eat during that time? No. I was no. gonna say, yeah, makes me no, wonder. I just, uh, I don't rem- if I did, I don't remember it. What well, showed you with Coronas up there? Yeah, Corona yeah. beer. You guys were Corona, Tito's, Tito's, you know, yeah, Tito's and seven. <laughs> Had some good wine you know, <laughs> from Benghazi. <laughs> so this first wave comes, right? You guys, how long did that last? It, I mean, really, it didn't last that long. Like I said, it was probably ten, fifteen minutes. And I mean, is that because you were overwhelming them? Yeah. I mean, they thought, I, I really think they thought they were going to be able to, because on our east, it was our northeastern flank. It was our, we had our back gate was on that, on that wall. And Tig and I were in the corner position and Tonto and Debeer up here, we had them in a crossfire. They thought they were going to be able to walk into uh, our facility like they did the consulate. I mean, because the consulate, they just walked in really. Yeah. Well, I remember uh, Tonto, he was standing on the diving board, and he's like, you guys are screwed. Yeah. Two of you with this, and it's a sniper, you know, heaven yeah. and all that stuff. Why was that? Was that trying to keep it on the DL or something? Is that why? I, again, I think it goes back to, and this is just Oz's assumption, and you know what assumptions are. Yeah. You know, um, I think it was the foreign policy at the time. They didn't want other countries that we were in to think that we were taking them over, that we were running the show for them. It was that whole touchy-feely, we're going to let you figure things out for yourself. I mean, we see it in our democratic cities all over the country. Oh, my God. And how that works out. Producer Chad, I want this to go 12 hours. That's all there is to it. So here's the thing. So this compound, which is supposedly the secret compound, Mm -hmm. there's not a lot of red hair, red bearded Libyans, right? I mean, didn't they know that that was the U.S.? You know, most of our neighbors thought we were um, Eastern European. Because if you remember that most of the Mediterranean, I mean, there's been a lot of trade between France and Libya and Italy and Libya and all the, you know, they're used to seeing white faces there all the time. So it, they really didn't know. No, most of them didn't know until you opened your mouth and started talking. Right. <laughs> and then obviously, I mean, hey, you know, I'm from Eastern Colorado. <laughs> right. Man, I had this so laid out perfectly from start to bottom. And I, oh, I just want to ask you a billion questions. So phase one, you get to downtime. How long between downtime from phase one to phase two? Um, probably about a half hour, 45 minutes, I'm thinking. I mean, and, and you know, and everything I say about time is a guess. Yeah. Because, I mean, I never wore a watch. I didn't have a watch on over there. I mean, I didn't, I had a phone 
And my phone told me what time it was if I needed it, but most everything I didn't really need to know what time it was, especially that night. I wasn't worried about what time it was because um, Tonto had kept time. He had a watch in it. You know, he says he knew exactly what time the call came in, la-da-da, but I didn't. I mean, I never really kept time. So it was probably maybe an hour, half hour, 45 minutes, somewhere there, and we started seeing movement coming back on our eastern flank again. And this time they'd come back with probably double the number of people. I mean, I'm thinking it was around 30 or 40 people this time. And uh, and there was even, like, some, like, law enforcement-type vehicles. So, yep. again, got confusing as yep. to what's going on and so on and so forth. And then there was there was a topic or something that someone said and, and uh, said, you know, Oz was, you know, did you expect help in one of the interviews you did? And you said, I never expected help anyway. No. So you guys were there, and it was going until it I was I mean, done. think about it. Look who I worked for. Right. Culinary Institute of America. <laughs> and I didn't even work. I was a contractor. Right. Okay? I mean... I'm below whale shit, okay? <laughs> That's where I fell on this. I mean, and, I, and, and if you approach it that way, I mean, I worked in, you know, if, a lot of the guys that had worked in Iraq and Afghanistan, and, and I had worked there, but not with the agency, um, with different groups, but you always had backup. You always had Big Army or the Air Force or whoever there to bring in stuff. A lot of the places I've worked, even in the Marine Corps and after as a contractor, were in places where we didn't have none of that. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, my thing was when I first got to a country, I find a way out. I, you know, I don't know how we're kind of making light of it because I thought it was going to be a really serious deal. And, and, and by all means, of course, you know, everybody has things and we want to make damn sure everyone knows we are not making light of anything. Oh, no. Um, and because there's always those people, right? And if you think you, and if you think we are, kiss my ass. <laughs> okay, good. Oz said it direct <laughs> yes. from Oz, who was on the building. So I feel good now. I'm all right. Now we're golden. Yeah. Phase two comes in. What are you thinking? There's more guys. Yeah. Well, and, and did it, you stock up? Um, well, and that's again, that's what you do in between. If you got downtime, you're making sure you have water. You're making sure you have ammo. Make sure people, your guys have ammo. Making sure you're reloading those empty mags or those half loaded mags, whatever you can. Now, you know, this comes back to our six P's prior planning prevents piss poor performance. We had extra mags at every, I mean, you figure a 50 cal ma- uh, ammo can. I mean, that thing is, what, eight inches wide, probably a foot and a half or two foot tall. Yeah. That thing's loaded with magazines. So every one of them had probably 40 or 50 mags. I mean, and really, we never needed that. I think I went through maybe six mags the whole night, if that. I mean, um, I never really counted, but I don't, because you you shoot, you make sure you're shooting at something that needs to be shot at. Um, rule, you know, it's, I, sh- I shouldn't say rule number one. Rule number one is uh, is God, family, country, and service. Rule number two is anything we're shooting once is we're shooting at least twice. <laughs> Make sure. Right. Rule number three is life's exp- or ammo's cheap, life's not. So <laughs> take care of business when you got to take care of it, you know. But uh, that's, I mean, you're you're reloaded and. You're, we're watching them walk up again. I mean, they're coming in. They're thinking they're going to come back in. And all of a sudden, a car comes out of the middle of the night down this road heading to our back gate. Now, we had T-walls, you know, the Jersey barriers is what we call them, yep. the highway dividers, the cement highway dividers. And it comes screeching to a halt, and a guy jumped out. Um, Tig started firing at some other guys, and this guy had it. I caught him out of the corner of my right eye, and I just looked like he was throwing something. So I swung over, put three rounds into him. He was throwing another IED, and he was trying to get it to our back gate because they figured if they'd have blown open our back gate, they could have rushed in. Well, I shot him. It fell about 10 feet short, and 
Tonto and DB started unloading, and again, I mean, it was like playing whack-a-mole at the state fair. Yeah, and this was wave two. Yeah, this is wave two. Okay, wave two lasts how long, you think? I know you're not uh, good with Probably, time, but... again, this one lasted probably about twice as long, probably 20 minutes or so. So they, again, you, got, you guys overwhelmed them. Yep, they started pulling their dead and their injured back. I mean, you could hear them out in the bushes still, you know, and you're always wondering if they're just placating, you know, kind of playing possum or whatever. Right. And, uh, you know, but... And your first thought is, okay, I'm just going to put a couple rounds into that bush, but you know what? I, it's just not the right, you know, unless I know they're a threat, I'm not going to shoot it. Oh my God. I love this one section. And I think it was TIG, I think. Um, but there's a, they're looking at this monitor and these, these sheep are all moving around. Well, and he's like, either they're crawling under it or right. whatever. And the guy goes, well, what do you know? He goes, I don't know anything about sheep. <laughs> I thought so that was great. It started out with me and him were sitting there, and it was at the downtime again. And, you know, even in between the first and the second one, me and Tig had, there's sheep pens on back in zombie land. And yeah. it was basically what it was, was a, a place where when the, uh, when the fast came, when uh, the intifad came, and it was time to do their fast or break the fast, they bring in the sheep, they sell the sheep, they butcher them there. I mean, you got blood and flies everywhere. That was our backyard. Yeah. Um, like I said, zombie land. And, uh, you know, we got, I don't know, they were full of sheep back there. And we start seeing them moving around. And there was two guys that would walk back and forth unarmed back behind the sheep pens. And we kept watching those guys like, what the heck are they doing here? I mean, we just got to a gunfight. And these guys are walking back and forth, you know, and you in your in your gut, you know that they're probably bad guys, but again, they're not they, armed. They're not going to do that, you know. Was there really a dude watching TV? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of stuff happened. I mean, who watches TV when there's a gunfight going on? First off, understand a lot of the culture is. I mean, at every wedding they have. I mean, the thing you know how you celebrate the wedding, you shoot every gun that everyone has off in the air. They forget that those rounds come back down. Right. But <laughs> I mean, I don't care what culture you are. If there <clears throat> is people falling all around, I think I'm turning my TV off, man. As, hey, then, but then you might be can you might be confused with somebody who's involved. <laughs> Good point. If I'm ignoring it and I'm watching TV, <laughs> I have no clue. Don't care what's going on over there. I'm focused on TV. It's soccer time. That just blows me away. It is. It's I now mean, you also speak another language. I do. Yes, I do. Hillbilly it's, and hill, English, two of them. Yeah, hillbilly and Western Eastern Colorado hillbilly. <laughs> Got to get that straight because there's a certain dialect to that. And Persian Farsi, Persian Farsi. So, it, so obviously that's handy, right? It is. But it that is. wasn't the language though that they had, right? No, uh, right. No. So because you had you guys had an interpreter. I really liked that guy in the movie. Was, yeah, he was a good guy. Especially when he was at the end, he's like, "No, I'm staying with you guys." I thought that was really awesome. Yeah. And then at the very end, goes home. That damn man. I mean. You know, we, we are so spoiled here. We really oh, are. We are. We are. I mean, Thanks to you guys, by the way. That you guys that's one thing I I'm, I'm just gonna throw it in here. Hell, you've already ruined my podcast yet. I'm now we're just having a conversation. <laughs> Man, I, I had I had this thing for time. Yeah, don't plan shit with I me. I ain't playing shit with you anymore. So <laughs> you, you know, uh and, and I wanna say this from my heart. Um, you know, I'm a doctor, I get to practice, um, I get to help people. I certainly take care of veterans. It's my way of of, of being a patriot because I didn't serve. And, you know, I, I do think you guys do not get enough recognition. I think about it every day. Just so you know, I do think about that every day, how blessed I am to be able to do what I want to do when I want to do it. 
without having served. And dude, it almost chokes me up even saying it because it, uh, it, it's a big regret I have, but, but that's my way of, of doing it. So I appreciate that. I don't even know why I threw it in right here. But well, hell, think about we're not this, even though. in third wave yet, but I had to throw that in. This is the thing is there's nothing to be regretful for because you're serving. Yeah, but you I, just do it a different way. Yeah. You're taking care of people. I mean, talking having having the hands to be able to take care of people, you know, when they're in their worst, or at least they think they're in their worst a lot of times. I mean, that's that's something. It that is. is something bigger. I mean, I just ran around with a gun. I know, but that's way cooler than what I do every day. I don't know about that. I, you know, hey, if we go back, I might switch with you. Let me tell you what. When I make my movie. Uh, about my life, we will not fill up Dallas. It will not be one of the biggest premieres in the world, I promise you. <laughs> if I can get my mom and dad there, I'm going to be like all excited. Wow. Which I want to talk about it too, but damn it, you keep getting me all jacked up. We got to go to phase three. <laughs> so you know the light's coming up. Do you know at that moment though, um, do you know that that's going to be the last one? Well, so after the third wave, the second wave, I mean, it's probably about one o'clock, maybe two o'clock in the morning. Things quieted down. They pulled back all their dead and wounded. Um, we had gotten information that Glenn's team, Bub's team from Tripoli, was going to make it in. They were making it in. They made it in about 1 o'clock. Um, we had uh, also had a phone call from a phone that the ambassador had from a local Libyan who said that, you know, the ambassador was at the hospital. Um, so a lot of things are going on now here through everybody's minds. Are we going to go rescue him there? Are we going to try to do that? We send an informant to because my first thought was they just want to get us outside the walls. Did you did you have that that did your bullshit meter go up yeah. right then? Yeah, in a heartbeat. Because you from what you'd probably heard from those guys come back the fire, the heat. Yep. No way. Yeah. And they had, you know, and so we send an informant over, a local Libyan, uh, paid him twenty five cents and I'll probably get twenty five hundred bucks. I don't know what it was, but um we gave him I'm sure he got paid well. He went over and went to check, and he took a picture of the ambassador. I think I believe he took a picture. That's what I was told, and I may be wrong in there, um, but um, confirmed that he was deceased. So Glenn's team—they weren't going to head there. We weren't going to head out and do that. They were going to come to us. Um, we had Sean Smith's body with us already because we got that back from the consulate. Um, we were thinking, okay. How is it going to work? They were going to come in because we knew the plane they came in on couldn't carry everybody out. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the mission was going to be get all the non-essential or non-shooters out, get all the case, the agency, all the full-time employees out. The six of us were going to stay there. I mean, we had plenty of food. We had plenty of ammo, had plenty of water. We're going to hold down the uh, Alamo. And uh, I had moved from the corner, northeast corner, up to – the rooftop, and this one I went around and kind of relieved Roan, let him go down and check on uh, a couple of the guys that had minor injuries. Um, Tonto had wall fell on him when he was climbing over walls, and it kind of um, damaged up his arm a little bit. Um, Dave, he had some cuts on glass and things like that, so Roan went around, did his medic thing, checking on everybody, come back up, and that's when me and him were just kind of, things were kind of calmed down, probably 4 o'clock. Between four and five, it was really kind of calm and nothing going on. Just kind of, that's when we kind of started to talk a little bit about family and things like that. Because they they were doing that was kind of that that prayer time, right? Yeah, and, yeah. and coming up on prayer about five o'clock, sunrise. Yeah, sunrise. And, and did you guys know that if you were going to get it, it was going to be right after? Well, and most of us, I mean, I did. I, I you know, I because I had told Ty, and I think everybody else figured it as well. It just didn't necessarily verbalize it, or if they did to each other, I don't know, but. Um, 
you know, we call it beginning morning nautical twilight. It's that half hour to an hour before the sun comes up and after it comes, you know, once it breaks over. And in the evening, it's evening nautical twilight time. It's that hour before the sun fully sets. Yeah. You know, the sun can go below the horizon, but it hasn't fully set yet. It hasn't gotten pitch black. And it's those times, you know, if you look back through history, Everybody, if, you know, if you've read any of the uh, Westerns, that's yes. when they attack. And why is that? Because at 5 o'clock in the morning, if you've been up all night, you're tired. Yeah. You're, that, the light changes. Your movement at night, you can see it, it's not. You can't pick up that distinct movement because between being tired, the haze in the air that's there at, you know, 5 o'clock in the morning when the sun's not coming up till 6, um, you get those funny shapes. Things are different, and that's why they attack. I mean, his, throughout history, that's when they well, attack. You, you even told one of your buddies he was starting to see a little crazy stuff, and you said, "Hey, you need to go. You need to take a break." Yep. Yeah. That yep. that was that was an interesting part there. Yeah. Um, literally, I watched it four times before we did the podcast, but I'd already watched it at least ten. I mean, I'm such a junkie with this stuff. <laughs> like I said, this is just exciting <clears throat> to be sitting here with you right now. So, phase three, though, that's when that's when the damage happens. Yeah, you know, and. Um, Ty's, Glenn's team, Bub's team had come in. They got escorted in by a militia. They pulled up. The militia commander and Glenn's team, um, I think there was seven or eight of them came in, and all of them went into the the, the talk, the tactical operations center, um, except for Glenn. You know, Glenn was that guy. I didn't know Glenn personally. I've never met him. Um, only heard it. I knew him by reputation. I mean, he's that guy. He was a, I mean, he was out in California as a – he come from East Coast, but he was in California with the teams, and he was a surfer. He was just a good – I mean, he was that guy that had a heart as big as, uh, as big as an elephant. I mean, he just was always smiling. He was that guy that always brought everybody up, and uh, that's what you knew about him. I mean, but he was, a, he was also a Navy SEAL sniper, and uh, he comes up on the roof because him and Roan had uh, served together, and – I mean, Glenn ain't going to be inside a building if there's a gunfight going on. I mean, what good are you there, right? Right. So he comes up on the building, and uh, Glenn comes over, and uh, Ty introduces him to me. And I turn to him, and I said, you know, it's a pleasure to meet you. I'm glad you're up here. Um, It's good to have another gun up here. And they had stepped across in front of me, went over to my left, and started talking. And probably within five minutes, the um, a rocket RPG hit the back wall right in front of us. Belt-fed machine gun opened up. AK-47s are opening up, and Ty immediately swings around. He has a belt-fed machine gun. He starts shooting. I start engaging with my uh, assault rifle. Glenn or Bub starts moving away from us, and he's trying to get separation, so we're not all three in the same spot just to make it harder to have more targets that they have to hit at. And uh, I went through a mag. Um, about the same time that Mortar or that rocket hit the back wall. A more the first mortar hit the outer wall on right on the top, right in front of Dave Ubin, um, Dave, the State Department DSS guy. He yells out that he's hit in between shooting. I glance over, I can see a silhouette because the sunset, you know, it's coming up in the east. And he's sitting on this little box because the wall, the, the wall around the top is about three foot tall, you know. So we had about a two foot box that you could step up on to get onto the ladder to climb down. And, He's sitting on there and he's yelling out, he's hit, he's hit, you know, and, and everything in my body says, I want to go over and help him out. But I know that I can't, I've got to stay there and engage the bad guys. And that's when the next mortar hit and it hit about 15 feet to my right, right in between us in the middle of the building, right at the edge. And 
it blew up. It blew a hole in the side of the building or the rooftop going the overhang part of the rooftop. Some of that shrapnel, I mean, a lot of that came in. It got me, um, knocked me kind of back. Was that was that the, uh, felt like a thousand bee stings? Was that no, one? No, that's one? the last one. Okay, okay. This so, one was the first one that I got. And I stood back up, and that's when I noticed that Ty was in a fetal position at my feet. Um, I know that, you know, because I know that Dave's not being able to shoot. Glenn was moving. He's not shooting that I know of. Ty was. He's out of the fight, so now I've got to shoot. I got. I know I got to get back. So I stand up and I bring my left arm up to grab my gun, and that's when I realize I'm injured. And about four inches above my wrist, it's kind of hanging off at a ninety degree. That angle. was the first one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. dude, you're even a bigger badass than yeah. I thought. It, a piece of shrapnel went through, took out two inches of the median uh, or the radial bone, shattered the um, ulna, severed the median nerve, contused. I had contusions on both the uh, ulna and radial nerves. Um, I mean, it was this bit of this bit of skin and a little bit of tendons and this right here that was holding it on. You can kind of yeah. see where it went through. And uh, but I didn't uh, realize that happened on the first one. Yeah, you know. And so I'm swinging my arm trying to make it grab, and because I've got to shoot. And that's when the next one hit. And when the next one hit, um, I glanced to my right. How, how long between those two? Well, all th- from the first to the end was about a minute and thirty seconds. Okay, so they were like boom, boom, oh, boom. Oh, yeah, they had us dead to rights. I mean, yeah. and the second one hit, I saw Glenn go down. It landed in front of him. He's out. He fell face first onto the um, rooftop. I turned back to start shooting again, and that's when the third one hit, and that's where it felt like a thousand bees. I mean, I, just, I think the adrenaline started running off from the first two, and when it hit, I mean, my first thought was I better get to the ground because the next one's going to probably kill me. Yeah. And so I dove to the ground and got into a small ball. And everything just went quiet. And so I immediately sat up and pulled the tourniquet out, thinking, okay, I got to get a tourniquet on my arm. And then uh, I saw Ty laying there, so I wanted to check on Ty. I forgot about myself, went over, kind of pulled myself over to him, tried to check his pulse, um, couldn't find a pulse on him. I sat back up against the wall and kept trying to get my tourniquet on. And during that time, I'd seen a shadow come up over top of the wall. And, uh, I mean, I didn't even even think of it as a threat. I guess it was just, I was, I knew that it wasn't because he'd come up over and immediately ran into Dave and that was Tig. Um, Tig came up, he ran into Dave. Dave's left arm was about severed off like mine as well as his left leg, about four inches above the ankle. He was spurting blood during the whole thing. It was showing. And Tig got two tourniquets on him, saving his life. Um, and then Tig came over to me. Now, this is one thing I always tell people, and uh, in all seriousness, you know, because Tig tells us different. So this Tig's lying, okay? <laughs> I want everybody to understand that. You see, Tig says that the reason he came over, he knew where I was at, is he came over that way because he heard some whining over there, okay? I was over there, and I didn't hear it. So I'm not sure what the hell he was hearing. I think he got rattled or something, and, you know, but no, it's serious. Tig's next week. Is he? Good. <laughs> Good. Tell him that he's lying. No. Uh, but Tig comes over, and uh, I'm sitting there, and I'm holding my arm up, and I'm reaching down trying to grab my tourniquet and get my tourniquet on my hand before my arm fell down, you know, exercising futility. <laughs> right. And he comes And you're up. left-handed. Right, right. No left. I was. Right. Correct. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> so you're, 
You're shooting right-handed. But were you? Sh- do you usually shoot right-handed? Yeah. Because okay. I'm, I'm right-eye dominant, so I grew up shooting right-handed. Damn, man, you were like 100% my hero, and that's and, like 96. Uh, well, I, I, I shoot pistol left-handed. I used to shoot pistol left-handed. I taught myself to shoot right because being an instructor, it's easier to do all that. But um, Tig comes over, and he looks down, and he says, hey, you might want to quit playing with that thing. <laughs> you ain't going to get it any better. And uh, so he grabs the tourniquet, puts it on, and he says, here, can you get over to the ladder by yourself? And, you know, and, and, and in all seriousness, I mean, I didn't know if I could or not. I just knew that Tig was the one that could save Ty and Glenn's life if they were alive. Yeah. And in the back of my mind, I still hope they were. So I walked over to the ladder, and that's when the next guy started coming up. And in that time, Tig had called a couple times for, you know, hey, where's the other guys? I mean, finally, some other guys came up. The guy comes up, and he says, here, can you get down the ladder on your own? And again, you know, that dumb thing that they tell you in the military, don't volunteer. <laughs> I'm like, sure. You know, and again, I think in my mind, I'm thinking that I don't one, I don't realize how, even though I know my arm's been hanging off, I don't realize how bad I'm at, how bad I am. And two is I'm more concerned about Ty and Glenn. Yeah. I mean, so they sit me up on the edge and I'm like right next to the ladder and I got my feet hanging off. And that's when it dawns on me that, you know, how the hell am I going to get off this <laughs> ledge onto that ladder? Because they ain't helping me. They're all busy now. And so I hook my good arm around that top rung, and I just figure if I slide off, I'll slide off, and I'll, you know, natural physics is going to make me turn. I can just land right on the ladder and then climb on down. And uh, I slide off, and everything's going just perfect until my feet are supposed to hit the ladder, and they go through each rung. And, again, but a prior plan prevents piss-poor performance. My good arm held me. And so I pulled myself back up, got situated, and climbed on down. And then I was walking around the front, and that's when I ran into another guy. And he walked me around and then put me in on the – I think I was on the floor or on the couch in, uh, down in the main room of yeah. the talk. And, I, and you know, because I, I, I assumed that, you know, obviously that's a bad, bad injury, right? But you were also saying that, you know, some of the shrapnel stuff was, was bad as well. Yeah, and, and we didn't – I mean, I knew I was hit other places because I'm laying there, and, you know, they had the lights turned off. Because, and I asked them later afterwards on the plane, or I, I don't know where it was. I asked one of them, I'm like, why do we have the lights off inside? And they're like, well, we didn't want every time the door opened to give away our position. I'm like, we've been in a firefight for like the last eight <laughs> hours, nine hours. I think they know where we're at. I mean, really? So, so now that I know your personality, this is actually kind of fun. Did you really lay on the bed? And when, they, when, when she went to cut your pants off, you say, be careful. I don't want to get stabbed too. Well, that was so... The female case officer, because I told him, I'm like, they're all just staring at me. I'm like, you guys got to get my clothes cut off because I'm bleeding from other spots. The only one that responded was the female case officer. She ran back and she was, I could hear her going through the med stuff and she yells out, Oz, I can't find it. I'm like, they're in the first set of shelves, third from the top. Which I thought that was impressive. That's that, that's that preparation. Yep. You knew where the shears were at. Yep. That's impressive. Well, and because there, there's, you know, there's things in, there's things that, especially when you're in that kind of situation, but there's things in life that are going to save your life or kill you. And you need to know where they're at. Yeah. I mean, I know, I always know where my guns are. I know always know where my ammo's at. And I always know where my med kit's at. And the three, the two things that really are three things that are going to save your life. And you know, this is a doctor of, is tourniquets, morphine, and shears. Because shears let me get off, get everything off so I can see the, the, the bleeds. The tourniquets help me stop the ones that are going to, you know, if it's spurting and you can stop it, the oozers aren't going to kill you. Yeah. You got time on those, and morphine's going to make the guy feel a little bit better. How, 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 you, how do you be funny at that moment? 
I just be me. I mean, that's just what it, the job had to get done. And I'm that's like, you. hey. And it really wasn't funny at the time. I'm just like, hey, I need to get the. So she ran and got, grabbed the medical shear. She's coming back. And that's when the, the deputy chief of base pulls out his buck knife. He says, here, I'll cut him off. And he's shaking like a dog crapping a peach seed, <laughs> you know. And I'm like. Well, if that wasn't meant to be funny, then the director missed that. Because I actually thought that was hilarious. I uh, know it. Because your, your arm's hanging off, you're bleeding all over the place, and you're like, hey, you know, be careful. I don't need to be stabbed. Either. Exactly. Because, <laughs> well, you know, and, I, and it's, I'm sitting there thinking, you know, because I don't mind if I go out in a gunfight. I mean, pile of brass around me. <laughs> right. That's a good, I mean, you can, that's a good obituary. <laughs> that is. Okay. But, Not kill with shears. Yeah. Survived gunfight, survived explosion, survived explosion, survived another gunfight, got killed by a guy with a knife. <laughs> yeah, you know, and that's as a the friendly best. guy. That ain't how you want to go out. That's a bad story. You know, and uh, they got me cut. They got all my clothes cut off, and that's when we, you know, we found about, I think we counted like 25 holes, 20, 20 to 25, um, hitting the neck four or five times in the chest, um, stomach two or three times, up and down both legs, up and down both arms. Were, were you in pain, or was adrenaline just cranking? At that point, I, I don't remember any pain. Um, again, I was focused on, Everybody else. The mission. And the mission yeah. at that point was making sure that they got the bleeder stopped. Yeah. Did you, did you have any idea at that point, though, that there wasn't a phase four? No. No. So phase four comes. I bet you get off that damn table and you go right back up there. Well. In your skivvies now. Right. And that's kind of, you know, because that's what would happen. I mean, I got to, my thought was get ready, get, get everything stopped. So in case I got to get back on the rooftop, I got to go. Or I got to, you know, whatever it takes next. So when that's all happening, now they they bring in the, the crew's going to take you to the airport. Yep. So did anybody tell you that? Or are you just still laying there getting kind of patched up? Well, they brought Dave in, and Dave was bad off. I mean, he was in and out of consciousness. Yeah. I mean, um, they got him ta all worked up, and then they got the uh, another militia to come in and escort us out because the militia that brought the Glenn's team in took off when the mortars landed. Or when the firefight started. Now, whether it been the hand of God or whatever, is they took out when they left, I don't know if they knew and were literally going after the bad guys where they were at or where they suspected they were at, or if they just took off and ran that direction because they went in the direction of where the mortars were coming from. And I believe that's what stopped it. Because if they had kept dropping mortars on us, they'd have had us it had killed everybody there. Certainly seemed like that was the major damage going on. And uh so we sun comes up. It's about seven thirty or so. They got Glenn and Ty off the rooftop. Um, got everybody loaded up, and we headed to the airport. But now at this point, though, we knew that there, there wasn't a plane big enough. Right. So did they still think about leaving some of you guys there? Yeah, because what? Well, they it, we weren't going to leave anybody at the compound because now we had this militia that was um, kind of on our side. They although they just turned around and got the hell out a of there. Different militia now. This but did militia, you know that? I didn't know that until after the fact. And what I was told is that it was a, and here's the irony of it, it was a Qaddafi loyalist militia. Oh, jeez. So the guys that were killing us or trying to kill us were one of the militias that partnered with Feb 17 to overthrow Qaddafi. Okay, so I'm going to segment into here because I wanted to know <laughs> this from you, all right? The current state of our country, right, which is the greatest country in the world, Yep. We got problems, but it's the greatest country in the world, yep. right? I've only lived here. You've seen the rest of the world. Tell me if I'm wrong. You, uh, we, have, we have it so good that we have first world problems. You know, exactly. I love it. And, um, you know, you guys were in a battle 
and it's a gunfight, and you know who your enemy is. You bring that now into current events today, and it's like, uh, it's like, man, we don't even know who we're fighting over here for whatever it is we're fighting for, and it's really frustrating. you got to go wait through things to go to the Senate, wait through things to go through hearings, wait through things to go. I mean, and this actually turned political. Yeah. This was a, this ended up yeah. being a political issue. Yeah, it's I mean, and it's unfortunate that, you know, um that you know, I don't care what kind of character George Floyd was before, what his character was, what his history is, he didn't deserve to die. Right. I've been in law enforcement. I've never needed to put my neck on some my my knee on somebody's neck. I don't know why he thought he needed to do that and how it was. Um, that was inappropriate. It was wrong. I think the guys that were there didn't have the intestinal fortitude to correct it. Um, but unfortunately, that guy's death, George's death, has been so disrespected and so tarnished by everybody else who's out there trying to make it um, into a into a thing. Yeah. You know, because it's, it, I would have never thought as a young adult coming up in the Marine Corps or anything that um, fomenting dissension could be profitable. How 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 does how does that set with you guys? Uh, it's just, I mean, that you know what? Do you get pissed like the rest of us? Oh yeah, uh, yeah. You know, it's. I mean, this is a the thing that most of these people out there that you know. Kneel for you know, and I don't care if you kneel for the fl- kneel for the national anthem. That's your choice. Oh, we were so going to get there because producer Chad, we've just lost all of our listeners because I'm going to take him down this road. I got a problem with that. Well, here's why I don't. I don't have a problem if you want to kneel, but kneel on your time. Okay. Yes, hundred percent. If you work for somebody like the NFL, and they have a rule that says don't, then you don't. And if they aren't big enough to enforce that rule, then they are not worth the powder to blow them to hell. And I'm saying that is the NFL because they are so, I mean, we've gotten to be a country of worrying about how people feel. We, our laws were based on Judeo-Christian principles. We were a, we were a country built on a constitution that, I mean, you, when you really study history and you look at where the founding fathers come from and who they were and what it took to stand up against a country like England at that time because we didn't have a voice, okay? They stood up because they didn't have a voice and they fought a revolution because of the oppression. I mean, you look at the First Amendment right, you couldn't speak without permission from the crown. You right. couldn't own guns unless you were with the crown, you know, you had to have somebody, they would station a soldier in every house along the eastern seaboard to make sure that you weren't fomenting dissension. That's the things that we that they fought for, that they wrote the Constitution for, and they were scholars who looked back to the Greeks, the Romans, to Magna Carta, to all that, although that history developed this country. You know, I, and man, I get it, man. I know racism exists. I know, I know all that stuff is real. Um, I feel for it. Um, and man, you know, you, you, just, you can't make everybody happy, but I don't know why the national anthem bothers me that much. It well, and it does me, me it bad. does me personally, it bothers me, but you know what? I look at it like this. 
I've fought for everybody that's an American. Mm -hmm. Whether I agree with you or disagree with you, I fought for you to have the right to disagree with me, and I want you to have that right to disagree, and I want you to exercise that right in a peaceful manner because, you know what, we have it set up. That's how it should be because, you know, again, I go back to early on when uh, after Benghazi, I got approached to write a book about my life, do a biography. First thing they asked me is, do you hate the people that were trying to kill you? I'm like, no, why would I hate them? And they're like, well, they were trying to kill you. I'm like, okay, I don't get it. I don't hate, I don't need to hate anybody because the moment I start allowing hate in my life, it will take over your life. In the absence of good, there's going to be evil and I got to make sure there's good in my life and that, you know, I, I love everybody in this country. I think that's a great saying because, yeah, these guys are coming up at you. You don't know them, but they're trying to kill you. Yeah. All right, we got to get to faith. <laughs> so current event, or faith. Yep. We, we, you know, one of the things that was really cool, I know you got a big faith because I've watched a lot of the interviews that you did. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know what, you know, what they always say is uh, there's never an atheist in a plane crash, and I'm sure that's same goes for war, right? Yep. Um, I did find it interesting, uh, you know, producer Chad and I on a lot of our podcasts, things turn to faith because people's stories, when they get to a certain level there, you need a bigger, higher power. I want to let you talk about that, but I just want to mention in the story, there was two things. One, uh, it seemed like every single one of them guys, uh, mentioned God. Uh, Tonto was up there. He said, um, I forget who he was talking to now, but he said, uh, he was talking to DB when the bullets start flying. Well, he said, I'm not scared. He goes, is that weird? Yeah. And uh, he says, because I feel like if I'm doing the right thing, God's going to protect me. Yeah. And then uh, I think it was Boone. Uh-huh. I think it was Boone. And Boone says, uh, he goes, not any more weird than the rest of crap you say. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I just love that yeah. dude, man. Yeah. He was like yin and yang, yeah. man. Yeah, that's true. So so you go into your faith for it just a little bit. Well, you know, I, I grew up in eastern Colorado. I had a wonderful, uh, I mean, I was blessed. I mean, um, I grew up. And in the Methodist church, I sang in the church choir. I had a wonderful youth pastor and his wife who were instrumental in building that foundation of my faith. Um, but obviously, I mean, I was a, I was a young kid that so does oats. Um, you know, I mean, got into fights, drank, did all the things that were wrong. And, you know, I kind of joke about it. Is, so the difference is before Benghazi, I mean, here's the straight and narrow. I had the left and right lateral limits. I bounced across the straight and narrow every now and then crossing back and forth. Um, and I always, tried to ha- I always tried to make my faith, my relationship with the Lord, because to back up, I don't believe in religion. I think religion's man-made. Yeah. I've seen too many people killed in the name of religion. I think your relationship with the Lord is completely different than religion, because that's something personal that you have that closeness. And he even says it, you know, love, love all others as I have loved you, not do unto others as I have done, as they have done unto you. Love others as I love you. And Christ loved us enough. God loved us enough for his son to die on the cross to take away all our sins. I mean, so, but before Benghazi, it's like, I gotta, I'm going to make this work for me. You know, I'm going to work it to, okay. But every now and then throughout my life, there's been things where God's kind of stepped in. I mean, we had a guy when I was doing a patrol in the um, in the jungles um, of the East Asia. He fell off a cliff and landed in this pool of water. Well, when you ran down, I got down there and I looked up. He shouldn't have landed in the pool of water. Physics doesn't allow it. He stands up and I'm like, man, you okay? Oh, you okay? He says, yeah, hey, certain guys. To... Man, God caught me and moved me over. And you're like, okay, yeah, whatever. Are you okay? No. God caught me and moved me over. And he says, and you looked at it where he fell and where the water was. 
and it was rocks everywhere else. Um, little things like that have happened that kind of kept me, and it was God just kind of telling me, you know, and Benghazi, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm, I'm a German American. <laughs> <laughs> Thought we weren't doing any hyphens. Oh, that's right. Unhyphenated American. I'm an American. <laughs> that's right. And a hundred percent American. I mean, my family was, is German descent, but, uh, we're hard headed. We're stubborn. And, uh, you know, it took God blowing me up three times <laughs> and, uh, to get my attention. I love that statement that you made earlier, though, where you were like, uh, you know what, I'm, I'm peaceful. I either get to go to heaven or I get to, you know, do that. I, and, it, I mean, I would think that that would be something you'd almost have to have to carry through that. You know, and for me, it's easy. I mean, because it, it, it was, you know, people said, well, were you afraid of dying? And I, and I actually never, I didn't realize I even said this one time. I was up here in Denver at a restaurant with a friend out of Kansas City, and we're sitting there having uh, a late breakfast, early lunch, and these and we were talking about Benghazi and this and that. And one of the, there were some four or five other tables around us. And one of the ladies comes up and says, you're Oz, aren't you? I'm like, yeah. And she goes, and started talking a little bit about Benghazi. And everybody else, that started, you know, when Benghazi came up, it's, this was 2016, early 16 probably. No, this was 2015. And so they, they, she's, everybody kind of gets quiet a little bit because they, they hear the word Benghazi, you know, and right. wondering. And I'm ta- talking to her a little bit. And she says, well, weren't you afraid? I'm like, no, I wasn't. I says, you know, it's because I'm immortal. And the, my buddy told me this about a year ago that I, he, and I didn't remember saying this. He says, yeah, you know, you said you're immortal and just paused and everybody went quiet. And then the look on her face is like, you know, man, look at this arrogant guy. <laughs> and I just looked up her. I said, until God's done with me, you know, and that's, that's the way I look. I mean, oh, man, I love that. That's powerful. You know, that's powerful because it is it's we all have a purpose on this earth and our purpose is to serve the Lord, how we serve him. Some are drawn to be preachers. Some are drawn to be doctors. Some are drawn to be warriors, cops, whatever. The, if you look deep in your soul and you start talking to the Lord, you'll find out what he wants you to do. Yeah. And uh, it's it, from there. It's easy. Love it, man. You know, one of the things that, uh, again, uh, Boone says, right, but he says it to um, um <clears throat> Oh God, who I forget who he said it to now, but anyway, it says all gods, uh, all hells are all within us, right? Yep. And I thought that was actually it was Tyrone when he was up there. He was actually talking to Jack yep. about that statement, and I thought, oh man, that is just such a wicked, cruel statement, right? And it, and it almost kind of fit the whole narrative of all of that stuff. It is. Oh my God, man! I tell you what, that is that movie just chilled me to the bone. Um, just absolutely amazing. We can't stop though yet. We've got to go into your 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 project. Um, yeah, it's you know because the one thing most people don't understand is private contractors or private security contractors is who we focus on. Um, we get paid a daily rate. So if I'm not working in the if my feet are not physically in the country that I'm paid to work in, I don't get paid. So September twelfth, um, two thousand twelve, after I got injured. I flew out of Beng- Libya. My pay stopped. I'm in the hospital for another six to eight weeks, going through several operations. I get shipped back home, go through several more operations, going through rehab. I ain't, I ain't getting paid. My pay stopped, so I get workman's comp. And anybody who's dealt with uh, workman's <laughs> comp knows how wonderful that is. And there's, there's nothing there for the families. I mean, in the military, you got family support services. you got all these things. I mean, Ty's mother... Ty got killed, and she can't be a gold star mother because he didn't get sick. He didn't get killed while he was on active duty. Oh. 
So he, she's not, his wife is not a gold star wife, you know, and there's something wrong with that because you've got contractors, whether they're private security contractors or they're just working for Raytheon and they're working overseas and they're working in the war zone, you know, they're still coming under fire. They're still there getting potential hitting an IED or mortars or rockets getting launched in on them and they get killed or injured. There's no one there to take care of them. I mean, they have a workman's comp policy and how do you take care of that? And there's nothing for the family. Well, you know, I, I want to make sure we get this out. Give us the name of that. And it's shadowwarriorsproject.org. Shadowwarriorsproject.org. Yep. So Produce Chat is wonderful at getting that out there. We want to help you guys as much as we possibly that would be can. Terrific. We'll push it to everybody. He is wonderful at doing that stuff. Yeah, if you get out, you can go to our website, find out what we're doing. And we've just started, and we haven't officially launched it or na- announced it, but I'm going to unofficially announce it now. We have a, we have a canine uh, program where we are um, pairing uh, veterans and contractors with um, high-level service dogs. And uh, to make, because the dogs make a difference in a person's life. It gives them a purpose again. It kind of goes back to that whole having a purpose and it gives them that purpose and, uh, you know, and, and, and it gives them that teamwork. And um, so we're starting to do that. And we are going to have a, our big event this year is going to be August 22nd at the Colorado Clays, we're going to be holding a, uh, a sporting clays event. And, uh, you know, what it is, is, uh, anybody wants to put together a team and it's, I know people are going to be like a little spendy, but so to be a shooter, it's 10 grand, but that doesn't mean you have to write a check for 10 grand. You just have to go raise 10 grand for us. I know y'all got friends out there that can help do that. I mean, if you got 20 friends, that's $500 a piece. Yeah. You know, if you got 50, if you got 40 friends, that's $250 a piece. I think we can, you know, and put together a team of five people. And then what you're going to do is come out. Those five people that do that are going to be paired with a contractor or an operator and get to spend the day with them. We're going to start at eight o'clock in the morning. We're going to get it out there and we're going to have a good day shooting. We're going to have a, an award ceremony afterwards. We're going to eat some great barbecue and have just a good time of getting together and, and sharing our lives and hearing these stories. Now we go to the book. Yeah. How long did it take you to, to collaborate on that? You know, really, it was, it was not that hard. I mean, so kind of the backstory, um, if we've got time. Yeah, we got all time. I had midnight. a friend um, who was a Navy, former Navy SEAL who had a friend who knew Ricky Schroeder, Silver Spoon's yeah. guy. He hit me up and wanted to write a biography about my life. And I'm like, hell, I ain't got nothing better to do. I can't go back to work, right? right. And somebody needs to tell the story. And I really wanted to tell it about my faith and about everything. And uh, so Ricky Schroeder started wanting to you know, uh, write the book. We went, and I got to meet Clint Eastwood. Um, Clint Eastwood asked me, he says, have you written a book? I'm like, no. He said, go write a book and then come back. So I'm like, okay, this guy knows what he's doing, right? Clint Eastwood. Yeah, Clint Eastwood. Like the Clint Eastwood. Yep, the Clint Eastwood. I went and got an agent, um, got a deal to write a book. Uh, she got me a deal um, for a million dollars up front um, as an advance to write the book. And that's the that group, that uh, publishing agency is the one who asked me um, if I hated the people I w- that were trying to kill me. Yeah. And uh, But before I wrote, before I signed the deal, before we inked it, I went to the other guys and I says, you know, hey, this is what's going on. I'm going to let you guys know this is why. You guys are still working. This is what's going on. And I'm like, do you guys want to write it together? Because if we wrote the book together, I think it'll be a better story. 
because I wasn't everywhere. You guys have parts that I don't have. I have parts that you don't have. Mm -hmm. We, I mean, we're a team. Let's do it. And so we all decided that's what we were going to do. So I gave up that deal and then entered into a deal with um, the five of us. And we had a, um, we had a potential agent that was different than the one I had. And he knew Mitch Zukoff, who was a New York Times bestselling author. And that's kind of how we ended up doing that. Um, but uh, you know, it was worth it. Yeah. It was worth it because it was the right thing to do. I mean, Again, there's, honor, a, better story. Right? there's a better story. Yeah. yeah. So Mitch Zukoff wrote the book. And I mean, he just said, go. He didn't want us talking to each other. He wanted us just to tape record our story as we lived it. And then he put it together. And I don't think you could have asked for a better writer to put it together the way they did. Tell us where we can get it. Um, we can, you can go to markgeist.com, and it is up on my uh, page there, and you can buy it right there. And uh, it'll be autographed, and you can get it right there at markgeist.com. Fantastic, because we do have two books here, and we want those autographed. We Will do. you honor us with that? Oh, of course. Fantastic, it's man. It's easy. I tell you what, I again, from producer Chad, myself, Truth Talks, we cannot thank you enough for doing this. And I, I, I don't want you spending all the money that we paid you in here all in one place. I won't. I won't. I think okay. I got paid over a glass of wine, and it was a good glass. That's <laughs> a good glass. That's good wine, buddy. It is. It is. Um, real quick, though. Fire. One thing is, um, I put this out to everybody, is if you sign up for a minimum of a $20 a month reoccurring donation for the year, um, you'll get a free book. Oh, fantastic! We're so, gonna we're gonna push this real hard for you, buddy. I appreciate it because you're a great person. You've you've done us a wicked service. I hope we did you a service. I literally you screwed up my entire podcast, but I think in the most beautiful way. <laughs> hey, I you know people always I don't follow orders very well. <laughs> well, you know I, I'm telling you, I knew it was gonna be good because warriors are just good. They're just yeah. a they're just good people. B they you know I'm from the Midwest. You're always gonna get along with a warrior in the Midwest. Exactly. There's just no bullshit when exactly. you go down flyover there. states. That's where we come from. Yeah. Right. Thank you for your service oh. uh, and everything else You're that welcome. you've done. And literally, man, anything that you need from us, you let us know. We'll spread any word you want. I'm going to come out and shoot with you. Definitely. It's on producer Chad's birthday, but we're, we're going to make some stuff happen. We'll make him a big cake. We'll make him a big cake. I appreciate it. We are going to play. I think one thing we're going to have is, um, have you ever played shotgun golf? Yeah. I bet you haven't played. Have you played shotgun golf with a shotgun? Yeah. How do yeah. you do it? How, how they would end up doing it is they would use it kind of like, it was almost like a five-stand type thing, but if you got it in a, the first, second, third shot, whatever, it was either a birdie or a bogey or whatever it was, whatever shot, that's how they played it. Okay, so it was fun. The way I play it is you got a golf ball. You got a piece of cement. You place the golf ball on this piece of cement, then you got to shoot the cement and ricochet the bird shot into the golf ball and see who gets closest to the pin. Okay, no, that's not how we played that. Yeah, yeah. this is where you're. This is that's where you're, a redneck type of. Where do you think I come from? <laughs> you know, the bad thing is when I sneak into these golf courses late at night and they hear shotguns going off. It's like, hey, here come the cops again. <laughs> hey, are you going to take me up on coming back and hunting? Yes, I will. Do it. I would man. love to. Oh, I my, my brothers, to. my brothers would love to have you. My, you know, my parents are there and they're in their eighties. But it, it, take, please take me up on that. Uh, It'll be the blast. I'm kind of upset because I had to cancel a trip to Africa this year because of COVID. Yeah, it's coming up and supposed to be in July, and I just uh, COVID hit the pocketbook a little bit, so I got to get out and earn some money. So please take me up on that. I will. And then again, hit us up for anything you need. This is the best damn podcast. It was amazing. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. I know you tell that to everybody, but God bless. <laughs>